All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18, which is very familiar, but I want to give you a lot of the context around it. Uh, The verses say, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, that text of Scripture does away with a general resurrection uh, because it says right there that we're going to stay with Jesus. And there's folks who want to teach we're going to go up and turn right around and come right back down, and that's, that's wrong. So we'll deal with some of those things as we go along today. Uh, but the chapter has a context. In other words, this text has a context. It's wrong to take a section of Scripture out of its context uh, because you can misinterpret it that way and you can make different applications but there's always only one correct interpretation of a text and so we want to look at the surrounding chapters and find out a little bit and uh, I'll walk through some of these with you Uh, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4 we have our walk our walk is to please the Lord how ye ought to walk and to please God verse number 1 tells us Well, in verse number 3, down through verse 7, we find out the will of God. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. So if you ever say, I'm trying to find God's will, well, here's part of it right here. And it goes on to say that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. So the will of God involves two things. It involves purity of life and ethics. Ethics is very lacking in our day. Uh, ethics means that if I'm, I'm responsible to someone... Uh, then I'm, I'm going to be up front with them. Ethics demands that I do what's right, whether anybody else notices or not. Uh, if I am checking out at a cash register and they undercharge me, I'm to point that out to them. That's ethics. Uh, if I'm walking uh, in a parking lot, and I've done this many, many times, find some money on the ground, I go into the store that the parking lot belongs to and say, I found this on the ground. And sometimes they'll say thank you and take it. Sometimes they say, well, if you find it, you keep it. Uh, but that's ethics. Ethics. And, and you've done things like that. Pastor Taylor and I talk ethics all the time. And it's an important class. When uh, Zachary was in Dyersburg State, he took ethics. Now, worldly ethics are a strange thing. They asked this question. So there's a fire in a pet store. Inside is a, I forgot, 65, 70-year-old man who's been convicted of being a sex offender, and he's on the sex offender registry. And then there's a a cage full of puppies. Who do you save? 
Well, the answer to that's always human life. Always human life. You say, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. Well, then you better study the Scriptures. Uh, we're, far, we're elevated far above animals. We are sentient beings. We have not just minds that function, but we have memory and all types of things. And so human life, but they, they use those kinds of things. You know, what are you going to do? You've got a 65-year-old man who's got lung cancer and a 25-year-old girl. And, you know, she's just trapped by the fire. Who are you going to try to save? Well, the answer is if I've got to pick, I'm not going to pick between one human and another. I'm going to try to save them both. Ethics demands some decisions, and we live in a day when ethics are sorely lacking. When we, it's a, in our country, we have come to expect our politicians to lie to us. I can remember when lying was a death knell. If they found out you told a lie, you were, you were done, you were toast. But today, it doesn't make any difference. They can say anything they want to. Even the news media lies nowadays. Ethics. So the will of God is for us to be pure. Let me drive that pegged in the hole just a little further about purity. I know our society is teaching our young people that they can be sexually active if they want to outside of marriage or ahead of marriage, and they're just kind of checking things out or just casually hooking up. God is opposed to that. Any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage is sin. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, however you might want to come up with it, whatever tune you'd want to sing, God is for purity. Purity. And you say, well, I've already failed. What am I going to do? Take it before the Lord, confess it, get it right with God, and from, start from where you are doing what's right. Amen? Ethics and purity. That's the will of God for us. Well, that's not all we see. Picking up verse 8, 9, and 10, we see the warmth of love. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that ye would increase more and more. Now let's go back and look at those three verses just briefly. The warmth of love. First of all, there's a warning. There's a warning. When those, and when it says, he that therefore despiseth, despiseth not man, it's talking about these precepts we've looked at. How we're to walk, what the will of God for us is. And somebody said, I don't want that, I'm not going to have that in my life. Well, if you're despising these truths, you're not despising Paul, you're not despising me, you're despising God. Then he goes on and says, Ye are, it's not even necessary for me to write about your love. They're, they were known for their love. First Baptist Church ought to be known for its love. You ought to make it your practice when somebody's here that you're not used to seeing that you go up and introduce yourself to them. We want to reach out to people, we want to be in uh, contact. And if, you, people, you, if you don't do that, people will think you're aloof. They'll think that you think you're better than them. They won't even talk to me. Well, that's, you know, we don't want that. And, and listen, it's probably not true. Just some folks are shy. Some people are introverts. They're, they, they're just not naturally out, uh, outgoing and outflowing. But you can practice it. And, you know, you don't have to get everybody the first service. But somebody you don't know, go to them and, and shake hands. Hey, 
I'm so-and-so. I said, on the other side, I see you over here all the time. Let's talk. I would encourage you to practice sitting someplace else once in a while than where you sit now. We've got one of those, it was expensive when we bought it, one of those foam mattress things, you know, and they're not supposed to get uh, humps in them and stuff. But if you lay long enough in the same spot, it'll get one. And so these pews are getting dense in them. And I, I really, it would do you good to just sit someplace else. You might find out you like it better. It might be warmer or cooler or whatever, but you might like the camera angle better. But let's, let's don't be static and stuck. Let's be people who love other folks and have a, a heart of friendship towards them. That's warmth. And that helps people return back to a church service. So the warmth of love there in verses 8 through 10. And then the work we're supposed to do, verse 11 and 12, that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we have commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. There's a value to work. If a man won't work, neither shall he eat. That's a Bible truth. A number of years ago, we had a family that in our neighborhood, and the little kids came to church. The little girl's hair was matted to her scalp, literally matted to her scalp. She and her brother um, smelled. I don't know how else to say it. We only had one man in church with a strong enough nose to deal with it. Eventually, they had to shave the little girl's hair to get the, the matting out because it, 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 it wouldn't brush out. We caught them going through the garbage can trying to find something to eat. And so we fed them and uh, fed the family. Got a bunch of stuff together, tried to find some jobs for the men. But the men never showed up for the work. So we get another note from them, said uh, that food and all that was really good. We'd like to have some more and some money too. And I sat down and wrote them a note. And I said, if you starve, we won't feed you. I did, I did that. I showed them the Bible verse. I said, we did these things for you. You live within shadow of this church. This one was in the brick storefront building. I said, you've never bothered to attend. I said, we'll feed your children anytime. But I said, for you adults who are too lazy to work, the Bible says, a man won't work, neither shall you eat. And I said, if you starve, we're not going to feed you. Sign my name to it. Had the men of the church sign their names to it. Oh, brother, did we get blasted? Unloving, unkind. No. Love doesn't mean you condone indolence. Love doesn't mean that you condone wickedness and bad things. And, and I wasn't pleased to write that to this, those folks. I wanted, we did everything we could to help them. And we kept the kids for a while, and after that they, they moved on and no longer in our area. I'm not going to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but what's the church supposed to do? People won't work. They're not supposed to eat. That's, that's Bible truth. There's value in work. Now, if you can't work, that's something else. If you couldn't find a job, that's something else. But if you're just too stinking lazy to work, then I don't know if the church has any obligation to help you in your laziness and your indifferentness. God hates laziness. And young people learn this lesson. If you've got a job, show up early. 
If you're supposed to be there at 10 o'clock, show up at 10 minutes till. So, well, that's my 10 minutes. Yeah, it is, but it'll stand you in good stead. Show up early. Don't show up late. Be at work, and if you can't be there, call them and tell them why. And if you don't like the job, work till you find another one and be honest enough to say, I've got another job and I won't be coming back. How long do you need me to stay so you can replace me? Amen. Just called ethics. Doing what's right. There's value in work. and you, You'll like it if you work and produce and get something. You'll pay, you'll pay more uh, attention to it if you had to work to get it. You know that first car you had to scratch your money together to get? And it may have been the ugliest car on the road. I had one that they called the sweet potato. It was copper colored, didn't have a grill in the front of it. And the front seat rocked when you hit the brakes. But it moved, amen, got me from here to there. Church hated it so bad they finally bought me a car. So I get rid of the sweet potato. I think they named the other one pumpkin or something. I forgot what they named it. But work is a value of Judeo-Christian principles that has made America different than the rest of the world. And having that, that value of work. Then we get down to the section I just telling you about. Where we just read there about I would not have you be ignorant. That's the wonder of eternity. You see, right now there's practical things in our life. I'm supposed to walk to please God, live right. I'm supposed to have what? Follow the will of God and have some ethics and principles of purity in my life. I'm supposed to have some warmth of love in my life. And as I have all these practical things, I need to be reminded there's some things that are beyond what this world can ever imagine. Now, quickly to chapter 5. I'll give you a couple of more things and we'll be done with the context. You'll notice in verses 1 through 5 the word day, the word day. It deals really with prophecy all the way through verse 10, but if you use that, that word day, you'll see, but other times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Look in verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Look up, if you would, with me in verse number 6. Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the what? The night. And they that be drunken are drunken, where? In the night. But let us uh, who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So chapter 5 is going to break out this way. We have an emphasis on day and night. Then in verse number 8, down through verse 11, we're going to have comfort. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, verse 11. I'll give you another way to look at chapter 5. Verses 1 through 10 deal with prophecy. Verses 11, 12, and 13 deal with preachers. Preachers are held accountable to the Word of God and are accountable to the congregation. We're not dictators. Uh, we're not in, in uh, final authority. This, this Bible right here is final authority. And when a, when a pastor goes contrary to the Word of God, then he's abdicating his authority and needs to be corrected. So you find that in, in those verses 11, 12, and 13. And then you have the Proverbs of Paul. 
in the rest of the chapter. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Just a list of things. Look in verse 21. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. We're supposed to exercise our senses to discern good and evil. So hold on to that which is good, the Bible says. Uh, verse number 16, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and uh, everything give thanks for this is what? The will of God. We've seen that twice already, hadn't we, in these two chapters. This is the will of God that you avoid fornication, that you have some ethics. Here's the will of God, what? That you give thanks. Uh, verse 19, quench not the spirit. Uh, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. These are proverbs. These are uh, positions and principles that we're to build into our life. So how are we going to put this to, to work in, in what we know today? How is it going to apply to us? Part of Paul's impetus in writing uh, the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians was because the Thessalonians were continuing to lament excessively so over their dead. And that's what heathens do. Uh, I, I found some interesting things about death and how it's handled in different cultures. In Jewish culture, uh, they, would, they did not embalm, but they would take herbs and spices and pack them in the mouth and the ears and under the arms between the legs and wind the body up. After about a year, they would go back and collect the bones and take the bones and put them in a smaller container and put that off to one side in their burial tomb or crypt that they might have or a cave, more than likely. And so that's how the, the Jews dealt with it. But let me give you a few of these. Sky burial. Anybody heard of sky burial? And it's common in Tibet amongst Buddhists who believe in the value of sending their loved one's souls towards heaven. That sounds sweet, doesn't it? In this ritual, bodies are left outside, often cut into pieces for birds or other animals to devour. This serves the dual purpose of eliminating the now empty vessel of the body and allowing the soul to depart while also embracing the circle of life and giving sustenance to animals. Hmm. Dancing with the dead. Best describes the burial tradition in Madagascar of the uh, Famadahana. The Megalese people open the tombs of their dead every few years, rewrap them in fresh burial clothes. Each time the dead get fresh wrappings, they also get a fresh dance near the tomb while music plays all around. This ritual translating as the turning of the bones, is meant to speed up decomposition and push the spirit of the dead toward the afterlife. Sounds like a lot of ignorance in the world, isn't there? In the Philippines, in Tinguinian people, dress the deceased in the fanciest of clothes, sit the body on a chair, often placing a lit cigarette in the lips, while the Benecu people blindfold their dead before placing them in chairs at the entrance of the home. The Cebuano people dress children uh, attending funerals in red to lessen the chance they will see ghosts. The Sagada region features coffins hung from cliffs, bringing the souls of the dead closer to heaven, while people in Kavite often entomb the dead 
uh, the, the deceased vertically in a hollowed out tree chosen by the person before death. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Concern them which are asleep. Celebrating the life of the deceased can take many forms. A tradition in Varasanai, India, involves parading the dead through the streets. The bodies dressed in colors that highlight the virtues of the deceased. Red for purity, yellow for knowledge, for example. In an effort to encourage souls to reach salvation. Ending the cycle of reincarnation, the bodies are sprinkled with water from the Ganges River, then cremated at the town's main cremation grounds. And then we read, I would not have to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. A heathen writer one time wrote, When once our brief day has set, we must sleep one everlasting night. Well, that's not true. We're not going to, our bodies are not going to sleep endlessly. But the problem between paganism and Christianity is they don't understand the distinction between the spirit and the soul and the body. A Thessalonian inscription of one once dead, there is no resurrection. That's the people that Paul's writing to. That's their culture. That's what they, they said. Pagans had no thought nor hope for the continued existence of the body. Their belief system gave them no hope. Let me read a text of scripture to you. Ephesians chapter 2. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's what lost folk have. Nothing. Nothing. These cultural rituals of death that we've read, I'm sure those folks think that's perfectly, naturally normal. I cannot imagine chopping my mama into pieces or my dad or my wife, leaving the bodies out for insects and animals to pick the bones and then me going to do something else and that's supposed to send them on to heaven. But when you don't have truth... You don't know what direction you might go. Well, there's some other things that they did that we read about in the Scripture. They cut their flesh. There's a technical term for people who cut themselves out of uh, stress and anguish. I've forgotten what the term is now, to be honest with you. Uh, but sometimes people do that. They'll cut on the inside of their arms, inside of their thighs, someplace where they're trying to hide the fact that they're doing it, and it is just stress. Well, here you see people who are cutting their flesh for, uh, out of honor to the dead. Uh, they would make themselves bald, cut all their hair off. Uh, they would have terrible mourning cries, I mean just weeping and howling and, as they mourned. Doleful songs that they would sing. You remember our Lord Jesus Christ. Look in Matthew chapter number 9. Our Lord Jesus Christ had to deal with some of that uh, as he 
ministered to people. Matthew chapter number 9, verse 23 and 24. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the minstrels, that's those who are playing musical instruments, and the people making a noise, that's the professional mourners, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But you know what he did? He raised that little girl from the dead, Talitha Kumai, brought her up from the dead. There's some truths that you and I need to remember. We've read the text, and I'm going to get to it, I hope, today. But there's some truths that we need to remember. Number one, death for the believer is the body entering into a calm and holy sleep. The soul and the spirit don't die. The real you continues to exist. You are a soul and a spirit that has a body. The soul and the spirit will never wear out. The body does. There are people in hell right now who've been there for thousands of years because of their their sinfulness, their wickedness, their rejection of the truths of God. There are people who've been in heaven for thousands of years because they trusted Christ. Their soul and their spirit's in the presence of the Lord. The body is in the ground, but there is going to be a resurrection day. At death, our souls are invisibly and individually with the Lord. We're, we don't become part of a collective group. We're not a part of a life force. We're, we're connected to God. And even though we won't be able, we don't see our loved ones now, we don't see God with the eyes of our, that are in our head, our eyeballs physically, yet we know as we see Him in the Scriptures what's going to take place. I found this very interesting. Anybody know what the word cemetery means? It literally means a sleeping place. And that's what it is for believers. We plant the bodies in the ground. We lay them there. Waiting for that great resurrection day when King Jesus is coming back. Hey, listen, remember this. The hand that laid them down to sleep is the same hand that shall raise them. You know, mom will go into the children's bedroom or dad and they'll pat on their child, hug them a little bit, maybe hold their hand, say a a nighttime prayer with them and that hand lays that child to sleep. Well, the next morning that hand raises that baby, wakes that child up. Of course, sometimes babies wake up before we do, don't they? At His coming, at the Lord's coming, the entire church, the whole church with all of its members shall be visibly and collectively with Christ. So shall we ever be with the Lord. That's what the Bible just said. Remember we we read it there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 16 and 17. We which are alive and remain, all the, the dead in Christ already raised, then we which are alive and remain should be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. It clearly implies the mutual recognition of the saints. You won't need a name tag in heaven. You'll know each other. Uh, Peter, James, and John knew Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't have name tags. And listen, they'd been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years when they saw them. How'd they know? They were just, that knowledge was gifted to them by God. 
when we go to heaven, we're going to know everybody. You're not going to have to go up to somebody and you say, hey, who are you? Where'd you come from? We're just going to know. God's going to grant us, I believe, that knowledge. Then shall we know, even as also we are known. A lot of people fret. Am I going to know my loved ones? Yes. Don't fret over it. Don't, for not even a second do you need to wonder about that or question that. Will, he, will my husband be my husband in heaven? Not in the sense he was down here. Will my child be my child? Not in the sense they were down here. Listen, every human relationship that we have now that's a good relationship is going to be elevated to its maximum height and intensity when we get to heaven. Maybe you've got a Christian friend that you really love who's been a blessing to you. You only get to see him once every two or three or four years or something like that. You wait till you get to heaven. That friendship you had scattered over the years and over distant spaces shall be rekindled and ignited into an intense fire that will be brighter than anything you could possibly imagine down here. Hey, listen to this. God, hey, hold on, this is good stuff right here. God has predestinated the elect whom He foreknew to be conformed to the image of His Son. Don't be scared of that. That's God's guarantee that those of us that are saved are going to heaven. We're going to be made like Jesus. That's not God saying some people can't be saved and all that. That's, that's not what's in view there. He has predestinated believers to be conformed to the image of His own dear Son. The word conform there is the word you use for minting a coin. You know, they have a, a, a die stamp that comes down and stamps out the image on those dimes and nickels and quarters that we have. And it's imprinted on there. And, and the dime has one imprint, the nickel has another, the quarter has another, the penny has one. And we can tell the difference in them by nothing else, by the imprint that's on them. And so we are going to have the imprint of the Son of God on us when we get to heaven. Our hope, our hope is the happy state of the believing soul after death. We mourn down here. We grieve down here. We weep. But our loved ones in heaven are saying, Oh, if you could just get here, you'd love it so much. You remember in Luke chapter 16, there's a rich man in Lazarus. And Abraham said, those that would come to you from, from here cannot go there. I'm wondering if, if maybe there's a hint there that he was saying that there's those who'd be willing to leave heaven to come and to help you. Paul the apostle said something I don't know that I can say. He said, I'm willing to be a curse for my people Israel. He said, I'm willing to be cut off and me be the one in hell if it would save the Jewish people. I, I don't think I could, I've reached the level of my maturity of Christianity to say that. But oh my soul, those on the other side of death are not grieving. They're not hurting. They're not in heaven wondering where you are. They're not up there wondering how long it's going to be before we show up. They are exceedingly happy and totally satisfied with the presence of Christ. Our hope, but not just the, the believing soul, but the resurrection. 
Jesus said what? I am the resurrection. He didn't say I can resurrect people. He didn't say I teach resurrection. He didn't say I have the power of resurrection. He said I am the resurrection. Nobody stayed dead around him. Anytime he got around a dead body, he raised it from the dead. We have a hope of seeing our loved ones again. There's nothing wrong with that. That ought not be the consuming thing, but there's nothing wrong with it being an intense longing and yearning. We, we begin to remember, it's, it's a blessing to have the pictures we have today. Just imagine if you lived before the time when they had photographs. And all you'd have is this thing called memory. And over a period of time, you'd be trying to strain and remember what your loved one looked like. Oh, it would be a deep-seated yearning. And we have that yearning to see our loved ones again. They're going to look different when we see them. They're going, they're going to have a different body. It's going to be a perfect body. It's going to be a glorified body. I don't know if Smitty will have a flat top in heaven or not. <laughs> I don't know how our hairdo will be, but whatever, however we are, it's going to be perfect. Amen? The main attraction of His return is not our loved ones, but Him. Him. Oh, I want to see Him look upon His face. I know what my mom and dad look like. I don't know what my two children that my wife miscarried, I don't know what they look like. I have a yearning to see them, but oh my goodness, I can't wait to see Jesus. To gaze upon His face. It, it, right now our bodies couldn't stand it. Uh, God told Moses, no man can look upon me and live. He said, but there's a place up here next to me in the cliff of the rock, and I'll put my hand right there, and as I pass by, I'll declare the glory of God. And today we sing, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We shall laud him at his coming. That means we're going to praise him. When he comes back, whether we're alive or we're resurrected, it'll make no difference. We're going to join our hearts together in praise unto him. We're going to laud and applaud His return. Secondly, we're going to put honor on Him as much as we can. I've read about the heavenly scene when we take what crowns we've won and we cast them at His feet and say, Thou art worthy. And some of us are probably wondering if we'll have anything to give Him at all. We don't expect to have crowns. We don't expect to have much. We're just going to be there in heaven my soul, we can bow on our face, say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, and join in the great redemption song, for Thou hast redeemed us of every kindred, tribe, and nation. By Thy blood, saved by the blood of the Lamb of God. Hey, when He comes, we're going to receive our final discharge from this war. We're in a battle. We're in a war. You're in a war with your flesh. You're in a war with sin. We live in a wicked world. It's just soaked in it. But we're going to get our final discharge papers when Jesus comes. And we're going to be visibly joined to Him.
There's some other things in this text we need to see. There's going to be apostasy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the Bible talks about that apostasy. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. We're seeing a falling away. Heard a fellow on the radio today said, we're seeing the most precipitous fall in the prestige and impact of the Christian church that, that's ever been in our time. Maybe so. I remember reading Jonathan Edwards. You remember Jonathan Edwards, the guy who read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and started a revival here in the United States called The Great Awakening? I read his book and he said, as preachers we were, were worried, were concerned. He said, it seems as though our words come out of our mouths and hit the floor before they ever make it to the pews. He was dealing with apostasy. My soul, I don't know if we've ever seen it on the scale that we see it today. They tell me that tens of thousands of young men who might would have joined the military are refusing nowadays because of the wokeness that we have. Saw a man playing like a woman in the military talking about that diversity and transsexualness and wokeness is the salvation of, I say, it's a matter of national security. And I'm thinking, you've lost your mind. But that's what sin does to people. It makes them do lunatic things, irrational things. You say, well, they got a right to be, they want to play like a woman. They may have a right, but it doesn't make it right. And I don't have to argue their position because their position has no validity in reality. I'm a man. I don't have a feminine side. You say, well, does that mean you're hard-nosed? No, ask my wife. She'll tell you. She better. God made us male and female, didn't make us something in between. There have been no archaeological digs where they found people they couldn't tell what sex they were. There's going to be apostasy, and we're seeing it big time. But I'll tell you this, when it gets dark, it doesn't take much light to shine. Our yearning is not for death, but for glory. It's not that I want to be unclothed, but clothed upon. It's not so much that I desire this body to be uh, you know, discontinued and uh, discomposed, I guess is a, another word you might use, but it, it's a yearning for glory. It's a yearning for our eternal home in the heavens, not made by hands. Oh, the text talks about a shout. He's coming with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, that shout. That shout's a particular kind of shout. It's a, you remember when Joshua and Moses were coming back to the to the camp, and Joshua said, I hear the sound of battle, the noise of battle. And Moses said, no, the, the noise of them that, that do sing, they're rejoicing. That's what I'm hearing. He could tell the difference in the noises. This shout right here in this text of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians is a signal shout. It means pay attention. There's something about to transpire. It's also a war shout. Listen, Jesus is coming right into the domain of the devil. 
I mean right down where the devil lives. The devil is the prince of the power of the air. He doesn't have authority in heaven. He has authority down here. He's called the prince or the god of this world. Those terms are used. When Jesus comes back, he's coming right in the devil's front yard. And the dead in Christ will be lifted up. And hey, it's going to be a war shout <laughs> when he calls us. Now this is what Freeman Weems believes. I can't be dogmatic about this. But if you'll remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Remember, he called him by name. I believe that what we're going to hear when that shout is each one of us is going to hear our name called by God. In the garden, at the tomb, Jesus is gone and Mary's standing there weeping so much she can't see. Tears are flooding her eyes. She looks in, there's two angels. She wasn't interested in those angels at all. Tell me where you put him. I want to know where he is. And I don't know about you, but if I saw an angel, I might take a running spell. Get happy or something. She didn't do a thing with those angels. Wasn't interested in them. She hears a sound behind her. She turns around, supposing him to be the gardener, said, Oh, if you just tell me where you put him. I love him. I believe him to be the Messiah. Tell me where you put his body and I'll take care of him. Jesus said one word. And when he called her name, she knew who he was. Just imagine we're walking along or we're sitting in a church service and the preacher's yelling and beating on the pulpit. And suddenly the next sound you hear is a heavenly shout and it's your name as he called you up to heaven. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you saw, not even as others which have no hope. <clears throat> have no hope. Grace regulates grief. It doesn't eradicate it. It's not wrong to weep. It is not wrong to have grief. It's not wrong for every once in a while for something that you've grieved over years ago to pop back up. And you to grieve fresh over it. It's okay. God built us that way. We don't want to be consumed by it. That's the problem. It's all right to have emotion, but it's not all right for emotion to have you. It'll eat you up. And so grace regulates our grief. So even while we're weeping and our hearts are aching, we start thinking about what heaven's like. What our loved ones are seeing. I watched as my dad died. My daddy was a man's man. He didn't have a feminine side either. He was a worker, worked with his hands. He didn't, wasn't a highly educated man, but he loved his country, served in the Navy CBs. That's combat engineers for those of you who don't know any better. Navy CB during World War II. Came back home and Made a living with his hands. When my dad got down, he was just in a bed, hospital bed, couldn't get out, had to wear a diaper. He didn't even know half time what was going on. 
when I stood there and watched my dad gasp in his last breath, I thought, to leave this and to be in heaven, I'd trade for that any day of the week. Grace regulates grief. It doesn't erase or eradicate it. We sleep. That's what the text says. That you saw about those concerning them which are asleep. I've mentioned this a few times in the past. Jesus died. That's what the text says. For we believe that Jesus died. He suffered the fury of death to take it for us. We sleep. But we sleep. Why should we excessively mourn? After sleep, we know there is an awakening. We go to sleep with the idea, I'll get up in the morning. I'll see you in the morning. In the book of Ruth, Ruth comes and lays herself down at the feet of Boaz. And at midnight, the Bible says he was, the man was afraid. And he begins to converse with her and finds out the woman's here. And he said... Uh, just lay down till the morning. Oh, brother, just lay down till the morning. Morning's coming. Morning's coming. When King Jesus is going to raise our loved ones from the dead. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 32 says, There's hope in the death of the righteous. Let me read you a little something. Oh, could we make our doubts remove? These gloomy doubts that rise. And view the Canaan that we love with unbeclouded eyes. Could we but climb where Moses stood and view the landscape o'er. Not Jordan steam, stream nor death cold flood should fright us from the shore. Because he lives. John 14. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. Amen. Romans chapter 6. He that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. And it won't have over us either. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. <laughs> you just wait. devil may try to frighten you when you're dying. He may. I don't know that he, how much access he has. But at that moment when your life is slipping away and your breath becoming difficult and your mind begins to disconnect from this reality and press into, into eternity, you'll find Him with you. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll know Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, For though He was crucified through weakness, yet He liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but, ye shall, but we shall live with Him by the power of God toward you. Second Timothy. It's a faithful saying. For if we be dead with Him, 
we shall also live with him. I didn't get to the text. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not in as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, the express commandment of God. <laughs> it's going to come a day when King Jesus is going to be given the nod by his father. Go get your, your bride, go get your children. And there's not enough devils in hell or out of hell or any other power that can hinder him as he steps down into the atmosphere and calls the dead in Christ first, then we which are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I'm comforted. How about you? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. All that stuff true, that and more. Every bit of it. What a Savior we serve. What a Savior who'd be willing to leave heaven. Suffer what he had to. To pay our sin debt. He stripped naked. He had to carry his cross. Maybe just the cross piece. Maybe just the uprighting. Because Simon was forced to carry some of it. They take him to Calvary. And he stretched out his hands. They didn't have to fight with him. And somebody said, how much does God love us? As far as apart as the hands of Christ were as they nailed his na hands to the cross. And Jesus was forsaken, abandoned by his Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to say that. If you don't know the Lord, this would be a wonderful day to get saved. Just to come trust Him. Cast yourself entirely upon Him. Give up on yourself. You can't save yourself. Give up. Run the white flag up the pole. Say, I surrender all then dear Christian, don't be discouraged. Life's hard, I know it. It's so final so many times, things we wished we could change. But our God's still on the throne, and He'll take care of His own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God's still on His throne. Father, speak to hearts as you would see fit. May the name of Christ receive honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.